This morning's verses are coming out of James 2, 18 through 26. I encourage you to open up your Bible. And uh, if you don't have one, the Pew Bible, uh, page 1012. This is a very striking passage. And I think you're going to enjoy it. You're going to learn a lot from it. And I'm sure our pastors will expand on that quite a bit. And it reads in verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless. Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see, that faith was active along with his works, and his faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and then sent them out another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is the word of God brought to us through James. God bless you. Good morning again, church. We are in a series, as you just heard, in the book of James, the New Testament book of James called Real Wisdom, Real Faith. Today we're wrapping up James chapter 2, and then next week we will begin our Christmas series, our Advent series in the Gospel of John, John chapter 1. We'll spend five weeks fleshing out uh, the, the Word became flesh, the significance of the Incarnation. We're looking forward to that, and then we'll pick James back up uh, early in the new year. Uh, this letter was written by James, who is the brother of Jesus. So he knows a lot about what Jesus taught. He witnessed it. He experienced it. He saw the resurrection of Jesus. He actually pastors the church in Jerusalem after Jesus ascends into heaven. And the primary burden of James's heart in this letter is to help Christians not just believe the right things, but to live in a way that aligns with our beliefs. He wants to show that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is good news because it changes people. You see, you can change. That's the good news of the gospel. 
Yes, it changes you. God does his work and then you change by the power of Christ in you. And what James has done already in this letter is he spent a lot of time talking about how faith in Jesus changes how we view all the things in our lives. Things like our trials and, and temptations and how, how, does the, how does our faith change how we use our words and how we use our wealth? How does our faith change how we treat other people, especially those not like us? That's what James has been focusing on. He's all about a faith that works. Not a faith plus works, but a faith that works. Last week, Pastor Brady did an incredible job explaining James 2, 14 to 17, what true saving faith is and what it isn't. That saving faith is alive toward others and cares for others. And today we're continuing the same passage and we're looking at a living faith. A living faith. This was mentioned last week, but it's worth, bear, it's worth repeating that this section of James is one of the most controversial passages in the New Testament. It just is. The reason is because James will say things that seem like the exact opposite of what Paul teaches. Paul says... A person is justified by faith alone apart from the works of the law. And we say, amen. And then James comes along and writes, a person is justified by works, not by faith alone. Well, that's weird. And that's why some people look at that, read that and go, see, the Bible is full of discrepancies. How can I trust a book that is, that is full of such glaring contradictions? And that, that's their excuse to kind of wipe away the Bible. Maybe you don't feel that strongly, but, but you have struggled to make sense of how Paul and James fit together. Today, I, I hope to show you how they do. I, I believe you can be confident that the Bible is not full of contradictions, because it isn't. James and Paul are not battling together to share a different gospel. They are apostles laboring together to flesh out the same gospel, the same message, the same doctrine. They, know, they knew each other. Did you know that? It's not like James is in this part of the world and, and Paul's over there and they don't even know what's happening until you read them like, oh my goodness, no. They got together, Acts chapter 15, you can read it later. They got together in Jerusalem and had this big council and they came out with a statement, this is the true gospel. It was the same gospel. So what is James doing here then? He's giving us a fuller picture of what saving faith in Jesus looks like in real life, in real life. Listen, um, there's a reason why God gave us two eyes, right? Have you ever tried looking at things with just one eye? Go ahead and put your hand over one eye. Can you still see? Yep, you can see. But with a limited perspective, isn't it? With one eye, you lose depth perception. And that's, and that's eyes that are right next to each other. And you still lose something. Two eyes gives you a deeper perspective. They work together. Different vantage points, and you see better and you see clearer. That's what James is doing here. He's showing us a different perspective of the, of the same gospel that Paul preached. And by the end of this message, I hope you see there's not only no contradiction, but that seeing from both perspectives actually enhances your view of the gospel and how faith and works go together. 
So let's jump in. Lesson number one in this passage is this. Living faith is not only what you believe, it's demonstrated by how you live. Living faith is not only what you believe, it's demonstrated by how you live. It is vital to understand right up front that the main point of James' argument here is not that works must be added to your faith in order to be saved. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that a living faith works. It, by the very nature of it, it's, if it's a genuine faith, it's alive. It's active. James is saying, I want to show you not how you get saved. He's like, I'll leave that to the Apostle Paul. Right? He'll explain it all in Romans and Ephesians. Right? I'm not showing you how to get saved. Rather, James is saying, I want you to know how you are already saved. He wants us to understand not how to get right with God, but to know if you've already been made right with God. And so he begins in verse 18 with a hypothetical debate between two people. He says, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. It's almost as if he's, he's pitting two people against each other saying, one says, I have the gift of faith. And the other says, well, I have the gift of works. And, and as if they're like arguing, saying, well, we just have different gifts and we need to accept that. And James is saying, no, 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 no. That's not how they work. That's not how Christianity works. Stop making it seem like faith and works are separate things. He says there's a clear connection between what you believe and how you live. That's his first point here. There's a clear connection between what you believe and how you live. And that's why James says, but I will show you my faith by my works. In other words, how I live is the evidence of what I believe. Listen, you can tell me all day what you believe. You can say, I have this belief. But you know how I'll know what you believe? Show me how you live. If I say that I believe my money, my, the resources that I have are not my own, that I don't own them, that I'm just a manager from, uh, of God's resources, that he's entrusted them to me to manage them, then listen, you ought to be able to look at my life and say, and test it out. Does Mark act like a manager or does he act like he owns his stuff? I can tell you all day what I believe, but how I live should flow from what I believe and how I live will really show you what I believe. Pastor Brady said this last week, it's, it's worth repeating. This is what saving faith is. This is what a living faith is. It's a transfer of trust away from yourself and into Jesus Christ, his life, his death on the cross. And what that does is that transfer of trust removes our guilt and grants us eternal life. That's what a living faith is. That's what James is assuming a Christian has. But the faith, but the way that faith is demonstrated, the way this saving faith is demonstrated is by how you live. Living faith cannot exist without works. Because a faith without works, as James says twice here, is not real. It's dead. Verse 17, it's dead. Verse 26, it's dead. Let me just say this. Words are important. We know that. Words matter. We live in a, in a society where increasingly words don't matter. You, you realize that? You say, well, how do you know that, Mark? Because look how many words we use. Look what we say on, on social media. We act like words don't matter. Look what politicians say. We act like words don't matter. 
They do. And when we get to chapter 3, James is going to slam us and say, oh, you better believe words matter. They have the power to do real good and real evil. So words matter, but listen to me. A faith that begins and ends with words is a dead faith. It's not real. It's showing a living faith is more than saying the right words because it shows that the words have penetrated deep in our souls to change us. And so James gives an illustration of how words alone don't indicate saving faith. Look at verse 19. He says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. A little bit of sarcasm here. Even demons believe in sound doctrine. Doctrine just means beliefs about Christianity. Even demons understand the oneness of God. Taken from Deuteronomy 6.4, the foundation of the Jewish faith and of the Christian faith. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. James goes to the foundational truth of Christianity and says, do you believe that God is one? Do you understand there's not many gods? There's not three gods? That there's one God? He says, that's great. So do the demons. They're monotheists just like you. There are no atheists in the demonic realm. Hell is full of good theology. That's the irony in a professed faith without action. You can believe in sound doctrine, James says, and yet you're no nearer to genuine faith than the demons. You see, as vitally important as sound doctrine is, and it is important, if you stick around grace long enough, you're going to realize we, we believe what, believes, what we believe matters. But by itself, sound doctrine can't save you. Even the demons have that. And guess what? Their sound doctrine, that knowledge, it makes them shudder. This is, he takes it even further. He says, demons don't just believe truths about God, it affects them. They have a respect for God's power and his greatness and his glory. And yet even in their knowledge of God, it doesn't change them. They still remain diametrically opposed to God. There's a weightiness to what James is saying here. He's saying you can't just say the sinner's prayer and then go about living a life that rejects the Bible and rejects Christianity. That profession of faith is a counterfeit faith because it does not lead to any change. It's a dead faith. And, and I know some of you are like, well, what about the thief on the cross, right? That's my proof that you don't have to have any works that you can do. All you got to do is say the right thing and you're going to heaven. Okay, you're right. The thief on the cross, right, next to Jesus, and he says, remember me when you get into paradise. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me. He lived a horrible life. He was like the, the dirtbag, and yet he goes to heaven because he trusts in Christ. That's true. But James is not talking about people who are dying on a cross. He's talking about people right like you and I sitting here. He's talking about people who are living. He's saying the same exact thing that Jesus, his brother, said when he said, you'll know a tree by its fruit. He's saying the same thing as Jesus when he, on the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says, uh, the man who hears my words and does them is like the person who builds their house on the rock. But the person who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like the one who builds their house on the sand. 
He's saying the same thing. That does not mean we won't struggle with sin. We still will. Oh, we still will. But, but James is not saying you're, you're living a sinless life. He knows he's going to address later our sin. He's simply saying there should be evidence. There should be evidence. That's what a living faith will do. So let me just ask you, does your life reflect what you believe? Does your life reflect that you believe the gospel is true and life-changing? I think we need to ask ourselves that regularly, even if it just confirms that what we believe really is true and has changed us. Living faith is demonstrated by how you live. But not only that, James teaches us this. Works do not earn your salvation, but are evidence of your salvation. Verse 20. James is passionately pleading with us to understand that a faith apart from works is what he says is useless. The word there means empty or fake or dead. Faith that doesn't work doesn't work. You get it? Write it down. You can think about it later. Or to put it more positively, real faith produces real action. It's active. It's real. And then he says, let me, James says, okay, let me give you two examples. I'm making a case here. So let me give you two examples that faith, living faith, leads to action. Case number one, Abraham. Verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Remember, James's audience is made up of primarily Jewish Christians. Abraham is, is the most revered figure in Israel's history. He was their patriarch of patriarchs. He was the father of their faith. James calls him our father. And so James is like, look, I know I'm going to make a, a strong statement about faith and works and how you're justified, and so I'm going to play my best card first. Boom, there's the ace of spades, Abraham. To bring up Abraham is to bring the, 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 the strongest evidence he can muster. In Genesis chapter 12, Abraham was called by God to leave his family and to leave his, his home and to go to a place that God would tell him later. And God promised Abraham several things. I'll bless you. I'll, I'll, I'll bless your descendants. You'll be a great nation. And, and every family on the earth will be blessed through you, Abraham. And Abraham follows God. He trusts God. But Abraham didn't have any children at that point. He's married to Sarah. They have no children. They can't bear children. And yet he believes God. He has real faith. And he leaves and he follows. And Genesis 15, God reaffirms to Abraham. Abraham's struggling. He's like, we still don't have any kids. I'm trusting you, God. We still don't have any children of our own. And God says, all right, Abraham. One night he says, look up at the stars. Start counting. He says, if you can count them all, that's how many descendants you're going to have. You got to trust me. And it's in Genesis 15 where he still has no children when God reaffirms the promise that we read that statement that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's significant. When Abraham believed God or put his faith in God, he was counted righteous. The moment, at that moment, God gave him the status of being in right relationship with him before he even offered up his son Isaac. 
And then 25 years later, think about that, 25 years later, God provided Abraham and Isaac with a child, sorry, Abraham and Sarah with a child named Isaac. And this was their son of promise, the son they had been waiting for. Through this son, the nation of Israel will be birthed, the whole world will be blessed. And yet, as, as many of you know the story, when Isaac was a little boy, starting to grow up, God commanded Abraham to take him up the mountain and sacrifice his son. And in a remarkable act of faith, Abraham was obedient to God. He takes his son up the mountain, not knowing how God would fulfill his promises, but trusting the heart of God. And just at the last moment, God provided an animal, a ram in the thicket, as a substitute for Isaac. And they sacrificed that ram, and, God, and, and Abraham declares that place, Jehovah Jireh, God provides. But then James says this, was not Abraham justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? His faith was seen in his obedience. That's his point. The obedience of Abraham was de demonstrated the genuineness of his faith. His faith was, verse 22, active along with his works. They're not one and the same. He has genuine faith and it leads to works. It's real faith. And then verse 24, the most confusing, most difficult statement in the entire book. Here we are. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. The term justified is what causes all the controversy. The problem with James using this term is that it seems to contradict the clear teaching of Paul. And if you're like, oh, come on, are we going to get in? Listen, just... Just give me a couple minutes. I, my parents used to love this show called Matlock. Anybody ever watch Matlock? Oh, wow. Got your attention. You're awake now. All right. And the thing about Matlock was he was this like, just this happy, jovial, down-to-earth guy, even though he was a lawyer, right? And, and he wears this seersucker suit, and he's just kind of, <laughs> and he's asking questions, and he's interviewing, but he's always able to discover just facts or evidence that nobody else is seeing, nobody else is discovering, because they're not asking the right questions. So let's play a little Matlock here, okay? Let's just ask some good questions. But here's the contradiction, or the seeming contradiction, I should say. Look at what Paul says, first of all, in Romans 3. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Justified by faith apart from works. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And so we know from the clear teaching of Scripture, a person is justified or made right with God by grace alone, through faith alone. Works in no way help achieve a right standing with God. You're not saved by works. So what is James saying? Here's what we need to understand. Words have different meanings in different contexts. And before, you're, you're, before you respond to say, ah, you're playing linguistic gymnastics. That's exactly what pastors and preachers do. No. It's a basic rule of language. We have lots of words that have several meanings depending on the context. And context is always king. Take the word suit. S-U-I-T. I could say I'm wearing a suit, right? Or I could say you can... 
file charges against someone, a lawsuit. You filed a suit. And you can't say, hey, that's not fair. This is a suit. That's not a suit. No, that's a suit. And this is a suit. And if I pull out playing cards and they have a different deck of cards, I can say there are four different kinds of suits. Right? Am I right? Am I trying to, to get around things? Am I being sneaky? No. Take the word justify now, even in the English language. Justify can mean, first definition, to make yourself right or to be made right. For example, if you're in debt to someone and you pay the debt off, you have justified yourself. You've made yourself right with them. Right? You have been made just or right by them because you paid off the debt. Okay? It also has another definition. Justify can not, not just mean to be made right, it can be made to, mean to demonstrate or to prove that you are right. If I say to my son, who did something that I'm not sure why he was doing that to a sibling, if I say, you better justify yourself, boy. I'm not saying, which I would never say it like that, but let's just say I said it like that. I would be like, my son, my dearest son, why were you doing that? If I were to say, justify yourself, what am I saying? I'm not saying, you better be made right. He can't. He already did whatever he did. I'm saying you better demonstrate that you were in the right in whatever you did to your sibling. Right? Give me evidence that you were right in acting that way. Do you see the difference? Here, let me boil it down now to, to Scripture. Paul means, when, you were, when he used the word justify, he means a declared righteousness. A declared righteousness. It's the first definition. To be made right. When James uses the word justify, he means a demonstrated righteousness. Proof that you've been already been made right. Demonstrating your righteousness. From Paul, it's a top down. From God to us, he declares us righteous. For James, it's a bottoms up. It's, it's how we live, showing that we've been made right with God. Justify for Paul means to be made right. It's exactly what happens when we're saved. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, when you trust in the finished work of Christ, the atoning blood of Christ cleanses you from sin and God declares that you are not guilty in his courtroom. What, what it, how is that possible? I am guilty. Because Jesus takes your place. He takes your punishment. And so he looks at you and the punishment's already been paid and there's no double jeopardy. You are free, not guilty. Justified. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Justified, that's declared righteousness. You didn't earn it, you can earn it. You receive it as a gift. But for James, the term justify means to prove or to demonstrate that someone is living righteous. It means providing evidence of one's righteousness. So why does James bring up Abraham. James wants us to understand that a person is justified by his actions, not just by his beliefs. He wants us to show that there's a demonstrated righteousness, not just a declared righteousness. 
A person is proven or shown to be a true follower of Christ by your actions, not by your professed faith alone. And because that's how we know if faith is alive in someone, it produces works. The surest indicator of what you truly believe are the things that you do. And so that's why even, even Martin Luther, who was the great reformer, who, who stood by sola fide for justification, right? We're saved by faith alone, not by works. And he pushed back against the Roman Catholic Church. Even Martin Luther made this statement. We are saved by faith alone. Amen. But the faith that saves is never alone. It never is. The faith that saves is never alone. But James goes on. He says, let me just not give you an example of Abraham because I know some people are going to be like, of course, he was Abraham. He's our father of the faith. Of course, he showed us his, his, his demonstrated righteousness. What about someone like us? And James says, all right, let me give you another example. Rahab. Rahab, notice James tells us in verse 25, in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute. Why did he have to say that? Why did he bring that up? He wants us to know Abraham and and Rahab are, are very different people. She was a Canaanite woman who had no power. Abraham was the father of a nation, right? Very different. And yet her faith in God, just like Abraham, her faith in God was demonstrated or proven or justified when she gave lodging to the Israelite spies and protected them from their enemies. And when she was questioned by the Israelites, why are you doing this? Why are you protecting us? We're your enemies. Why would you do this? She told the spies it was because she believed, quote, Joshua 2.11, that the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. That was her profession of genuine faith. And how did she show her faith? Her actions flowed from it. She hid the spies at risk of her own life. Her courageous deed shows that she had genuine faith and ultimately her life was spared when Jericho was destroyed. That courage was a sign of her living faith. When you have faith, a living faith in Christ, you're willing to take risks. That's what James is saying here. You're willing to take risks to honor Christ. And so let me ask you, are you living a life of courage today? Are you willing to let your faith lead to actions even if it costs you? You see, James wants us to live right now, right now, tomorrow when you go to work, tomorrow with your friends, tomorrow with your family, this week with your extended family, with your company, with wherever you are. Are you willing to live a life of courage because you trust God? That's how you'll know your your faith is living and active is you're willing to make decisions to honor Christ no matter what and to trust him come what may. And so James is making the case from Abraham, the greatest patriarch, Rahab, the most unlikely hero, that faith was justified or proven by their actions, and the same is true for us. Why? Because faith without works is dead. Verse 26. Faith apart from works is dead, as the body apart from the spirit is dead. Listen, we know that our body apart from a spirit is just a shell. You are not just a living body, you're a living being, you're a living soul. Your soul is what gives you 
your life. It makes you who you are. James makes clear, works don't earn your salvation, they're evidence of your salvation. True faith is a visible faith, a lived out faith. Not perfectly. Please hear me. I'm not saying unless you're living perfectly, you're not living out of real faith. No, we fail often and we fail miserably. And that's why you are declared righteous, not by your works, but by faith alone. But we need a reminder that our works demonstrate a living faith, which leads us to the third point and final point. When you understand that through Jesus you are a friend of God, you will want to live out your faith. We've been talking about how works demonstrate living faith, but I do not want you to walk away with the sense of duty that you must do good works in order to prove that you're saved. That is not what I want you to think. That is not what I'm saying. That, that would turn all of this into some kind of law-keeping, that, that you would obey God in order for Him to, to, to get Him off your back or, or to prove yourself to Him that you're really a Christian. That is missing the point entirely. If you think that, there, that's no better than the demons who shudder. They respond to God, but it doesn't change their relationship with God. Look at me. What does God ultimately want from you? You think he wants your obedience? You think he needs your obedience to like fill up something he's missing? No. You know what God ultimately wants from you? You. You. Abraham was called, verse 23, a friend of God. Isn't that amazing? That might not seem like a big deal, but it's everything. True faith recognizes God wants to be with you. And then you say in return, I want to be with God. How do you think of your friends? Do you, when you have a friend, do you think, I need to think of something to do so I can hang out with my friend? No, you think, I want to hang out with my friend. And then whatever we do is great. Because they're my friend. I want to be with them. I enjoy being with them. Listen, do you see the lavishness of God's love for you? You are saved by sheer grace and not by works. You become a Christian, a child of God, not by earning it, not by trying to, to, to earn daddy's love. No, you're a child of God as a sheer gift. He, he adopts you into his family. He literally chooses you to become part of his family. Back up in verse 5, you read, we read this. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? You are an heir to the eternal kingdom of God. God is fantastically rich. And he shares it all with you. All of his peace that you need. All of his joy that you need. All of his assurance of his love that you need. All of the sense of identity that the world's going to tell you, you got to do this, you got to be like that. And then it screws you up and you don't know who you are. And God says, yeah, because you can't figure yourself out. I got to speak it over you. And I do. All of that he gives to us freely. Don't you see? The greatest truth about your faith is not what you have done for God, but what he has already done for you. When God told Abraham to sacrifice your son, 
It must have wrecked him. It must have gutted him. He didn't understand why. He didn't have time to have a dialogue with God and and try to get into the intricacies of what God was up to, why God was doing it. No, you know what he does? He gets up early the next morning, takes his son Isaac, gets the wood, gathers the pack, and starts hiking up the mountain. And his son asks him, Dad, I see everything we need for a sacrifice. I see everything we need that, you, that you're going to do to honor God and, and, and sacrifice on the altar. But, but, but Dad, I don't see the, the lamb. I don't see the animal. And Abraham says, God will provide. And he trusts God. And he obeys God to the point of putting his own son on the altar and he raises the dagger and then God stops him in the last moment and says, Abraham, and this is what he says in Genesis 22, now I know that you fear God. Now I know that you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son from me. Why did God ask Abraham to do it? Ultimately, he was after Abraham's heart. He wanted Abraham's deepest affections, his love, and and Abraham gave that to God. He loved God. He was a friend of God. Do you want to experience such a deep love for God that you can trust him no matter what you're called to do in your family or your work or your environment or your resources or your body? Do you want to trust God no matter what he calls you to do? Do you want a living faith that works? then don't just look to Abraham and don't just look to Rahab. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. God took his own son up a mountain as well. And he felt every ounce of agony as Abraham did and more as he laid his own son on the altar of the cross. And she said, no, we did that. No, God was doing it. Isaiah 53, God was in charge. He knew that his son had to be crushed, that there would be no substitute for a son. Why? Because his son was the substitute for us. He would have to die in our place. A Christian is someone who looks at the cross and says to God, now I know that you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son, from me. When that sinks in, that God did this for you, when you were yet his enemy. That God didn't just say, I love you, Gene. I love you, Bob. I love you, Carol. He didn't just say it. He showed it by his actions. When it sinks in that he did that for you, your obedience won't be conditional. It won't be to appease God or to get him off your back or to get things from him. You'll want to obey because you think, whatever God asked me to do, I'll do it. How can I not? He gave me everything. I'm literally going to, as Brady said last week, I'm literally going to inherit the whole universe. Whatever he asks me to do, I can do it. I can trust him. I just want to enjoy being God's friend. Christian, the gospel doesn't just offer you eternal life. It changes your life now. You get to be friends with God now. Living faith works. So let it work. What step of obedience do you need to take right now to live out your faith? 
Maybe you need to get baptized. You've never been baptized. You've never taken that step of faith. Maybe today's the day you, you decide, I need to do that. Maybe you, you've not joined a local church and you don't realize God calls us to live in covenant community with other believers. And today's the day you say, you know what? I don't understand all the reasons why. I'm, I'm skeptical of membership. I've been hurt by a church, but I'm committing to join my life with the life of the body of Christ. Or maybe there's a, a sin in your life, a besetting sin that you need to address in a very specific way. I don't know what it is, but in Christ, you can courageously take that step today and if you're not a Christian please know that God loves you more than you can imagine he knows the worst about you and yet he still wants you even if you're weary even if you still have doubts you can still come and experience the transforming grace of Jesus turn from your sin trust in Jesus his life death and resurrection and you can experience a living faith that will change you from the inside out. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your great love. We thank you that you would want to call us friends. Lord, we know that you said to your disciples and you say to us that we are your friends because you laid down your life for us, your friend. And that's what a friend does. Thank you for befriending us. We were the kid in the cafeteria who had no friends. And you sat down right next to us. You befriended us. You loved us. We want to trust you. We want to trust you, come what may. We want to follow you in obedience, no matter the cost. God, help us to be courageous. May the declared righteousness that comes by faith alone produce a demonstrated righteousness that comes from walking in fellowship with you. For those who don't know you, maybe they're watching. Maybe they came with a family member or friend. Lord, I pray that right now they would call upon the name of the Lord, transfer that trust to Christ alone and receive it as a gift. I thank you that you're our only hope in life and in death. I thank you that Christianity works here in the nitty-gritty of life, in the gray and unknown of what do we do in situations. I thank you that you give us real wisdom and real faith to live that out. But Lord, I also thank you as I did a funeral on Friday that when we come to the end of our lives that you are our only hope in life and in death. That Christianity makes sense not just now but for all of eternity. That we may not understand all the reasons but one day we will when we see you face to face. May that future day impact our every day. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.